and welcome to Glossonomias, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Eric Armstrong, and with me here is Bill Thompson. Thompson. Hi, everybody. And this is Glossonomia Live, recorded before a live studio audience. Completely pegged the meter there, so it would be a mess. So we might record some fake crowd noises after it's Um the, uh, this show is recorded at the Vasta Conference 2011 in Chicago at Roosevelt University. And today we're making an episode where we're going to talk about how we make glossonomia. And we'll take questions from our live studio audience. So uh, without further ado, Phil, we need to tell the story of how we make this show. What, what, yeah, let's actually tell the story of how we came to make, the decide to make the show. Because I, it was... Your terrible idea, I think. Yes, occurs. I am to blame. Um, I was walking my dog, and when I walk the dog, I wear my headphones connected to my iPhone, and I listen to podcasts. And I was walking along going, you know, these people, they, they don't do anything special. And you know what I notice about these people is they just talk. They don't actually edit themselves. It's, just, it's really kind of easy what they do. I could do that. <laughs> I could do that with somebody else by Skype. That would be really neat. And then I just thought, well, why didn't I contact Phil? So I contacted Phil, and he thought that he could do it, I guess. Yes, I had no idea what would be involved, and that was key. Yes. I think uh, our original intent was to try to do it weekly or maybe bi-weekly. Uh, and in the first year, we managed to pretty rigorously stick to that schedule. I think, of course, we're very busy, but I think it's helped that we've minimized the amount of editing and fussing that we do. We do a lot more conversation. We're certainly redundant because of that, and we talk about things that are important to us in the sort of larger field of voice and speech. But we still manage to get the information across. Yeah. But we don't sweat as much. We don't write 12-page outlines anymore. Yes. And the, the, we, the, you know, being a show about doing a show, I think part of my intent of doing a show like this is to sort of say, you can do it too. If you had a topic that you wanted to do a podcast about, you could create a podcast or even a series of podcasts, you know, four or five on a select topic. So there's no reason why you have to do a show that goes forever. You could do a few shows about a specific topic and get it out there and share it with the world. So uh, maybe some of the stuff that we have discovered by doing this can help you to do a show too if you want. I think the key thing is the, the conversational aspect of it. It's important to actually have something to say, certainly. And it's useful when you don't make errors, but that's inevitable. So the most important thing is that we entertain ourselves, that we enjoy having a conversation with each yeah. other, and then we hope that some people out there will also enjoy listening to that conversation. I, I think that doing a recording by Skype, sometimes it is hard to, to follow one another, to pick up the cue... Yeah when to speak, to interject, because uh, if there's lag, and there's almost always lag, um, th that could be a real problem. I think part of the problem is that uh, sometimes we've done a show where we've been connected to the internet by Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi means that the signal has to go through the airwaves. It's slower. Uh, if you're hardwired into the internet, it's faster. So sometimes we've had to switch over to a landline, a direct connection. And when I'm at the university recording, then I have a super fast connection. Yes. 
And uh, at home, sometimes uh, the reality of my home office is that it might be difficult for me to set up my computer in such a way that I can plug into the Ethernet cable. So, uh, you know, planning it so that we're in the right place. So let's talk about what the methodology is through Skype. Sure. First of all, Skype is very easy to use and it's... Uh, has anybody in this room not ever used Skype? One, ladies One and gentlemen, on our large Out of thousands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, let's not go into the details about how to set up Skype. We're going to work on the assumption that most people know how it works. And that most computers are set up to do some sort of video, uh, that, that it'll be easy to do a video chat over Skype. Both of us have webcams built into our computers, so that's what we use. Although this microphone that we're using here is also a webcam, and if I press the little button that makes the camera pop out, it'll be too audible on the recording, so I won't do that. But there are external ones, and that's actually quite nice quality, this eyeball. or This is the, yeah. It's the, the snowflake, the snowball company, but it's called the eyeball. So the company is called Blue Microphones. Yeah. And they make the Snowball, which is a fairly well-known USB yeah. mic. And the Snowflake is a particularly small webcam mic. Well, this one's called the Eyeball. Eyeball. Right. I see. Okay. So uh, we are set up to, uh, to have a Skype conversation, as anybody can do. Uh, we are listening over headphones, so there's not any feedback and echo going on, but mostly... We're using, as you were saying the other day in the tech panel, a pair of headphones to record here. We have a backup microphone. So we're getting our end of the conversation. He's in Canada. I'm in California. We're talking over Skype, but we're recording our end of the conversation, which is why it's called a double-ender. A double-ender. So you end up with two halves of a conversation with no uh, interjections from the other person. And that way you can interleave them in a multi-track uh, audio editing program very easily. You just import the track and you line them up where the clap is and the gaps go where the other person's talking is. However, there is a problem and that is that the timing on a recorder often isn't exactly the same as the timing on another recorder or on a computer. And so if you have a conversation that's only 20 minutes long, which has never happened to us, um, uh, it's not a problem. But when you get to 45 an hour, that small discrepancy adds up so that th we start to talk over one another and then there's a slight gap before yeah, the next I person I start speaks. to sound like an interrupting pig and you start to sound a little slow-witted. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. Uh, and so you, you have to listen back to it. And even if you've decided, well, you don't make, we haven't made enough errors to really edit, merit editing it a lot, um, we, we do have to kind of listen through to make sure that they are syncing up and up. And if there is that delay starting to happen, to just slice out a second, half a second, so that they sync back up and it seems like we're talking to one another again. It's also true that sometimes in the middle of the conversation, it may be that our connection goes funny or that somebody calls us on our phone that we hadn't remembered to turn off. And what we'll do is just deal with the problem and then say, so we'll start back over at this point. We might clap to right. resync and then say, 
if we can remember what the topic was that we were talking about, we'll just pick it back up. And then it's usually pretty easy to make that little bit disappear and make it seem like a continued conversation. Fix it in post. Um, so that, that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, for instance, you know, things have come up. Last week we had a problem with my recorder. It didn't pick up my side of the conversation enough because one of the settings had not been adjusted properly. And uh, I had done a backup recording, and that's something we should talk about. Uh, I used my computer to record it, but my computer managed to pick up Phil's voice. And so when I synced them up, there's a slight difference between when Phil spoke and when my recorder, what my computer recorded Phil speaking. And so there's a slight sense of an echo. Because on my side of the recording, Phil's voice is incredibly quiet. But put them together, and there's just enough of a difference. It sounds like he's in a washroom or something. Um, now, today I I was in a washroom. Oh, well, that's. Um, I would suspect that today's recording will sound very echoey. This room is a very echoey room, so uh, apologies, everyone. But the, uh, uh, I, I think that um, if you're doing a recording, one of the things to spend your time on, spend money on if you need to, is doing sound deadening in wherever, the space wherever you're recording. More than an expensive mic, make sure that there's less noise or echo in your room. That's the more matter is, If you can put a blanket over a few chairs and make a little tent, a fort out of cushions, then it doesn't take a lot. You don't need to get that most high-tech equipment. No. You just need some soft goods. Yeah, and uh, when I record at, at work, I have a whole bunch of blankets that movers use, sound dampening blankets, that I drape over some mic stands and they dampen the sound. So. That's a fairly easy strategy. It's also true, I think, that very early on we were concerned with I wanted to be in my little voice lab with the best microphone and to do sound post-production, noise reduction, and a lot of stuff to make it just super, super perfect. People are listening to it, we hope, on their little headphones, and there's a lot of uh, wiggle room. So we, we want it to be a good recording, but it's surprisingly, I'm a little neurotic and obsessive. And uh, if you have that same impulse, you should chill out. Yeah. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about prep. How, how do we prep yeah. for the show? So uh, I think that's changed a little bit. Originally, we, we did as much research as we possibly could. Uh, now we do a, a little bit less research and rely on what we might know. And, and frankly, the upside of that is that then we make more mistakes that people could write in and, and correct us, and then we have something to talk about at the next show. I have to say that uh, we usually will trade off uh, preparing an outline. So if I'm preparing the outline and introducing the show, that means it's Eric's turn to edit. This last one, Eric did the prep because I was out of town. This, to me, I usually will go to the books that I have, J.C. Wells' Accents of English, and a, a handful of things. The Oxford Concise Dictionary of Eng the English Language is a really nice resource for basic information about sounds. 
but Wikipedia is actually very good. I think there's been a crowd of linguists who've sort of taken it upon themselves to make yeah. sure that the information there isn't all crap. There's a phonetics project, and they, they work together there. So that's good. And of course, it, it could be wrong, and we could be wrong, and then we stand ready to be corrected. The other thing that I frequently will do on a topic is I'll go search J.C. Wells' blog to see if any of these topics have been discussed before. And, uh, same with language log. Uh, Jack Windsor Lewis. Yes. And, and maybe uh, there's a new dialect podcast that I'm forgetting. Uh, Does everyone remember what the, the blog you mean? The yeah. dialect blog? Yeah. Dialect blog, yeah. yeah. So sometimes these topics will show up there. Just because I want to see if there's anything that I've sort of partially understood that now that we're talking about it in detail, I want to see if anybody has a different opinion about it. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I've done a, a library search using the electronic e-resources at my university library. I'll use uh, um, journals uh, about phonetics, a variety of academic journals, and I'll sort of throw out a, you know, a, a term like roticity or something like that and see what comes up. And occasionally I've found interesting articles that we can chat about. Also, there's the, the World Atlas of Language Structure, which we've referred to quite a bit, uh, WALS.org. And on one episode, we realized that my daughter was better educated on this than either of us were, so I interviewed her, so we have a little backup there. Which, if you want a recording of a doting father... Anything else, honey? It's, <laughs> it's pretty cute. It's pretty cute. Uh, but she actually knows what she's talking about, which is uh, a useful change. <laughs> so do you think, do you all out there think that we've covered the basics of how we record or there specific questions about the recording process or about the research process? I'm picturing the two of you in the same room with the lumps of coffee, so I feel a bit like there's no Santa Claus now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that it feels that way. And it frankly feels that way to me. It does, absolutely. Yeah, that uh, we, uh, you know, we're often sort of there in our PJs, kind of talk, well, usually you're in your PJs and I'm not because of time difference. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I got a chance to meet your family. Yeah, and, uh, you know, see bits of your apartment kind of blown out on the, can, uh, you know, your home. Uh, have you seen the dog? Maybe you've yeah, seen the yeah, dog. Yeah, dog but <laughs> those kinds of things. We it's edited that part out. <laughs> Um, and, you know, when we first started, we would talk, like, for an hour before we would record. And we would yeah. sort of talk through. And then we'll talk about this, and maybe I could cover that. Oh, that would be good. Now we just talk, and uh, yeah. we sort of run over each other's toes. And if we feel like, oh, he's talked a lot, I'll do this next section. And, yeah. And so... Uh, and what's really glorious, I think, the reason that we're a good pair here is that we're both willing to say, I don't think that's right. Right. I, I read something different, and if we don't know right now between the two of us what the truth is, we, we can go and look. So we're not either both on the same team or unwilling to confront each other, although I think we agree about most everything. Most everything, yes. Um, so my main question is, how do you come up with the topics that you discuss? Especially, have you had a journey from when you first started this project? To are you getting enough questions from people like myself uh, to generate the topics now? And we say your name as well. Anne Schilling. 
Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Well, we have a basic scheme, which is that we're going to work our way through the phonemes of English. Uh, also, that we're alternating between consonants and vowels. Here's, here's one thing I know that we're doing, is that we're living in fear of the R episode, and we keep on deferring that one <laughs> further and further, because we know from experience that it's going to take us 12 episodes yeah. to really cover. But we're getting close, we're, because we're going to, the centering diphthongs are just sitting there waiting for us, so roticity yes. is coming, baby. It's a coming. What other things would you say guide us in what the topics are going to be? Um, I, I think we do tend, to, with the consonants, we're tending to take a, a chunk of the chart and kind of like, let's look at fricatives and work our way mm -hmm. through all yeah. of those. And then we decided to do nasals in a single show. Um, Which was an hour and 40 minutes long. And, and you know, we, we have been trying to focus on uh, phonemes of English. Yes. And when we did nasals with only three nasals in English, we sort of went... Oh, let's do them all. Um, and so we've kind of broken our rule a little. Well, there's a conceptual problem there with that, because what we're saying is, let's do the English phonemes, as though there's only a single identity of the English phonemes, or that there, there aren't phonemes that cover many, many languages. So this was certainly evident in, in the nasals. English, as it is spoken around the world, contains allophonic variations of many, many sorts. And so to say that the labiodental nasal is not an English phoneme is false. It's not a standard, it, it's not an English phoneme. That is to say, it isn't, uh, doesn't represent a minimal pair in English. That the difference between mom and mom is not meaningful in English and probably not audible to the listeners. But the difference in articulation is certainly evident in, in all of our speech. All of you have done a labiodental nasal in your speech. It just doesn't have phonemic identity. And it's organizationally useful for us to talk about phonemes and to talk about English phonemes. But you covered Alex from the beginning. Yes. That is, that is built into the fabric of the show. It's sort of, you know, it's part of your sequence. And here are some other things that can happen. I think that's important, too, that we're not... There's nothing prescriptive about this. That we're not saying, let's get it right. How do you make this sound? And initially, when we talked about this, we did talk about the sounds. Uh, and there was some sense that we were going to be... Yeah, we, there was a sort of discussion whether phonology would guide our choices or phonetics. Yeah. And uh, I think there was a period at the beginning where we were trying to sort of do a kind of portion of the show that was more about kind of the phonetic thing that's happening yeah. acoustically, uh, sort of gesture of the sound. Um, and we, we still do that to a certain degree. But um, we're relying on people having, had, having listened to some so that we're not repeating what voicing is every time. Um, and I, I think in the first few episodes, we did stop each other and go, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, there's a listener out there who's never heard that sound before. Yeah. Um, yes, because we, we are doing sort of what we would do in a phonetics class with students. We're, we're trying to make sure that everybody follows the principles because the, the facts 
separate from the principles don't make any sense. And we couldn't really do the principles without dealing with the facts either. So the organizational principle is phonemic, I think. Marina Tyndall. Excellent. My question is, it sounds like you're in no danger of running out of phoneme-specific episodes anytime soon. But at any point in the question, might you consider um, making as your uh, episode focus a specific, I suppose, sociolinguistic question, which you can then bring into phonetic discussion, you know, such as, uh, you know, discussion about Sarah Palin's accent, and let's look at Alaska, and let's look at how politicians are judged for their accents, um, and so on. Thank you. I think that's genius, and uh, we haven't really thought ahead that far. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, we we wander into the, that territory all the time. J.C. Wells' blog is organized on the principle of what he'd like to talk about, and that's certainly something that, that we could wander into. We will eventually run out of English phonemes, and we will have covered, we will have worked our way through. The reason I think that we want to do that, and I've already used this for my students, uh, for students who are having a hard time keeping up with the pace of things in class, I'll say, listen to some episodes or listen to some episodes and write about the episodes so that, so that I know we're having a dialogue. My electronic self can talk to you for a while. So there is some usefulness in classroom situations of saying, you need to listen to the fleece episode, and that'll be background material for you. But then, yes, I think that there are many, many topics about accent teaching that we've wandered into. I think, I think that uh, as things strike us as examples mm -hmm. that are related to the phoneme that we're looking at, we'll often bring them up. So examples of, uh, you know, I've had a student who, or mm -hmm. there is this public feature, figure who, or there's this person whose name in the news features this sound. Um, and so we're not targeting whole shows about those things, but... There, there are certainly blogs, the ones that we've mentioned, that do that sort of thing, and uh, I look forward to, to working in that way, but I think we have to fill our library first. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a request that we had, which we figured we didn't have enough time for today, which was to deal with, I'll do it in my accent, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And certainly that's one that we want to come back to. It's phonemic in its nature, but it's a sort of subcategory of intervocalic R's that would be cool to talk about. Yes, so we have to tackle R first. Exactly. And so... <laughs> when we move into those pirate-infested waters, we will be prepared for that. But we are... We have, I think, plenty of consonants. Uh, we... I guess we've done a few diphthongs, have we? No, we haven't no. done any diphthongs. Oi! So there's plenty to do. Plenty to do. Other questions? Audience, here comes a question. And by the way, I think the gain is set up high enough that nobody needs to get in close to that microphone. Hi, I'm Amy from New York. And I would like to know, Will you ever have an episode on the usefulness or non-usefulness of general American as a descriptive term? Mm. <laughs> okay, 
for our listeners, Phil just did the Harakiri action. Yes. <laughs> I. So I've been thinking about that topic a lot lately because I'm endeavoring to write an accent book. And I feel that uh, non-Americans need good information about how to do an American accent so they can come over and steal our jobs. So... <laughs> Uh, bring it. Uh, so, and I am prepared to sell out for the right price. Uh, Your mom is a <laughs> so, I think that it's a, a very important topic, and it's a topic that's very loaded. Uh, I've been, as I've been writing about it, always referring to it as SCGA, so-called General American, so that we never forget what the problems are with the idea. That said, it's a very important idea, and I think actually we've made mention of it in a couple of episodes. So yes, an episode all about, here's what we need to do. We need to do how to do an American accent as a separate paid-for podcast that people can download from iTunes that will keep us in income for years to come. (laughs) Uh, But no, I don't think we're afraid of the topic. Uh, but I, I will explain. I think probably both of us, although we're teaching different populations, uh, encounter my experience of general American is different than your experience of general American. The thing, one more thing, and then I'll yes, see. We don't, we're so polite to each other when we're not on Skype. Uh, <laughs> I, I really, really, really don't want to present to a group of American acting students a model of American speech that is canonical. I'm perfectly happy to teach an Australian student a canonical American accent because it's much easier to understand that as something other that's a, for the nonce that you're trying so that you can get your pilot and move on, that you can detail from there. But I would never want to present to a student who comes to me, an American student, and all of my American students are plenty general. Uh, that's a problem for their acting class, probably. Uh, but so they're general Americans. All of them are general Americans. And if I say to, let's say, an African-American student from Detroit, I'm going to teach you general American, what I'm really saying is that your American isn't general enough or isn't American enough. So I'm really cautious about that. But as long as I explain about that every time, then then yes, it's something worth teaching. I think that there's a a thing about this sort of list of features, this cloud uh, menu of of possibilities where, um, you know, we go back to this sort of detail model as an a la carte menu where you can sort of pick and choose from different sections of that menu. Uh, That uh, awareness of what's, what's an option and what's, what's not really up for a lot of debate. There are sounds that are pretty consistent across the board mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the question is who's general American is such an important one um, working in Canada for American producers I'm frequently called upon to be hoser patrol to make sure that the Canadian actors don't sound too American and uh, they sound American not too Canadian I should say and the the, the challenge with that is that the producers can't agree on what that means. 
And so they look to me to be the expert, but occasionally something rings a bell in their head. That, that doesn't sound like my definition of what general American sounds like. But the other producers are like, well, no, that sounds fine. Um, so often I'm having to put out fires, and uh, occasionally they'll say, well, it's a problem with their accent, whereas it's actually a problem with their acting. Um, and they throw it to me to fix it. It's an interesting thing that, that it's outside of the context that uh, the rightness of the accent gets amplified, that in your context, the Americans in that situation are on patrol to define and protect the boundaries of what it means to be an American. Uh, whereas it's not not an issue in an American commercial shoot. It's just a subtextual issue. Yes. That I think it was referred to, I think Pat Fraley talked about this, that uh, an African-American actor is told that needs to be blacker or less black. And so that's one of those sliders that people can think about. But no, most everybody in the film world, let's say, doesn't have the language available to talk about how to manipulate your American accent. We have another question. Hi, everybody. I'm Beth from Cleveland. Um, I don't want to, at least at this point, talk about whether or not we should or should not be teaching standard American dialect to actors. But I do want to ask a question about standard American dialect. Um, traditionally, we teach um, the you know, call vowel and the foster. I probably didn't say that correctly, vowel. And I want your opinion on whether or not that's really standard American. Hello. Uh, yes. Yes. There we go. That's yes, the standardizing is... Uh, it, there is no standard. Uh, there's no uniformity. Uh, standard means the same, but standard is also what you carry into battle. So there are plenty of people holding up the standard of accent purity, uh, but I don't think that any of them can agree on what those sounds ought to be, nor is there much agreement on how they ought to be transcribed phonetically, which I think is just an error of phonetic training. I, my question being, of course, the follow-up question, this is still Beth, um, is that I very rarely, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Cleveland, I very rarely hear those sounds in my students' speech. You know, I hear those sounds when I go to the New England area. Um, and so it seems like there's an awful lot of the, an awful lot of the country that does not use that sound, and, and why are we teaching it as a standard sound? We aren't. Uh, I, I do think that uh, part of our job is to make sure that people learn a whole bunch of new things. Yeah. And historically, when I think back to the people who originated this idea of a standard and accepted form, um, that uh, there was an intent there to get people to uh, do stuff outside of the norm, but within the framework of this accepted form. Um, in Canada, many, many Canadians have one sound for all back vowel lexical sets, ah. And uh, getting my students to try those sounds on for size is 
It's difficult. It's a big challenge. Their ears sort of bleed a little bit as I explain <laughs> that this is, could be a possible sound. Um, but uh, one could do that with a historical so-called standard accent or with RP or with many accents that feature those lexical sets as different or distinct from a merged set with something else. So, um, you know, I, personally, I don't have such a big, you know, it doesn't freak me out, the idea of people teaching standard. I've had jobs where I was required to teach so-called standard, and that was not a problem for me. Uh, but it was covered with a lot of explanation about the history of this accent and that it's sort of, we're doing an accent with training wheels. We're doing this as an experience before we go on to the, the things that you're probably going to use more often. Um, and that you're going to be in charge of putting together. Um, that there is an expectation that uh, for many actors, they think of accents as coming in prefab kits. That they, they, you know, they get the CD and it's going to tell them how to do it. And I think a lot of what the training Phil and I are, are passionate about is preparing actors to be the kit builder, to be involved in the decisions about what these sounds are that you're choosing to use, not just sort of sitting back passively letting the author or publisher or dialect coach that you're working with to create it all for you. I think that that means that it's essential to teach phonetics, describing sound actions, and also teach phonology, who makes what choices and how they conceptualize those choices, to teach those separately, and then to prescribe third, so that people understand that there's a category of words that some people pronounce as foster, some people pronounce it as foster, and and it could be phonetically described in this way, and they tend to break down this way in this accent, and then we could finally say, in this role, we would like you to say this. I think that the conflation of all three of those things together is perhaps for time reasons, but what it really, I think, is doing is to follow through on an agenda of replacing people's accents with a new, better accent. And there's no such, there's no morality in speech. Sounds are not good, they are good for. I've said that so many times that I'm sure it, could, it will be echoed back to me. That that's to me the problem. The problem is that people get incredibly confused because the teacher is confused about what their agenda is. They think they're simply trying to teach the student what the sounds are, but they're trying to teach propriety, phonology, and phonetics simultaneously, and that's just a train wreck. I'll pound on the table. <laughs> I know it's a long way, but do you want to say your question into the... Hi. I'm Kathleen from New York, and um, this is something I wrestled with a lot and just wondered. Um, I've started referring not to standard American, but neutral American, which is Patricia Flex Fletcher uses that in her book. And I find that's easier for me to communicate to my students. I say, you know, we talk about a neutral body in 
in movement class, and what I'm talking about is as close as we can get to a neutral American speech, um, just um, trying to lessen uh, as many of the um, regional, regionalisms as possible, and um, that seems to be, for me, more successful than talking about general American or standard American, and I wondered what you thought about that term. I, I have an essential problem with it. Uh, and, and that is that very often in American culture, when we talk about neutral, I'll, I'll, I'll take a little linguistic journey. Neutral, blank, blanc, white. That what we're really talking about, if we don't pull racial and regional questions out of it, we're talking about a white elite accent. Maybe a Western, Midwestern white elite accent. And, or at least mainstream. And, and there's nothing wrong with that accent. However, I want to be really cautious that we don't... There is no such thing as neutral. There's no position from which we can be politically disengaged, I think. And so, as long as we recognize that, as long as we're not using that as our cover while we secretly feed the other agenda in, then, yes, I think it is possible to go through a thought experiment with our students and say that we're looking at, uh, to use a linguistic term, markedness. What's marked and what's unmarked? What's noticeable and what's not noticeable? And so it would be possible to do a survey of speech and say, what sounds here in your speech or my speech? What marks me as from somewhere? And, and that's really the model that I think a lot of people, when they're trying to come up with a general American accent for actors to use, that's the one that they're thinking about. They're saying, nasality is marked. Uh, breaking of trap into air is marked. Non-roticity is marked. And so you could go through a list. The reason that I'm terribly resistant to that idea of coming up with a list of unmarked characteristics is that the next step beyond that is to say, good, here's our good model that you should all follow. And if we haven't taken into account the fact that Denzel Washington is going to have a different unmarked accent than me, th then we've missed a step and we've gotten back into the seat of elitism and top-down changing of people. So we have to be just really not cautious, but really aware, really engaged. And, and we have to allow our students, we have to demand that our students interrogate us. That our students have to have the power to say, wait a minute, why? And our answer can't be, as John DeBoer said in his session earlier today, because I said so. It has to be reasonable. We have to have reasoned our way through it, and we have to be prepared to reason through it with our students. And sometimes the answer has to be because uh, that's what I came up with and yes. I can't think of a better way of doing it just yet. Because um, the fact of the matter is that we're not perfect and we are devising means of teaching things. My response to neutral has to do partly with sequencing, that frequently 
people use a so-called neutral as a starting place, that we are going to take your variety of accents and we're going to neutralize you. We're going to bring you all together to this hub. And from that hub, we will then branch off to other sounds together. We will go en masse to do a French accent together. But we're going to use neutral as our starting point. And so everything is referenced to that so-called neutral starting place. And the assumption is that wherever you started, you can't get to where we're going without going through that hub of neutral. Uh, and in fact, you can get to wherever you're going from wherever you start from, as long as you know where it is you start from. And that's difficult. It takes time. It takes attention to saying, identifying what it is that you do so that we can say we're not going to go through that central hub. Um, you know, but I, I do think that in the creation of uh, uh, idea and uh, that um, we had input from linguists saying, don't think, you know, this phoneme becomes that. Just say this is that. Um, it, it doesn't change from this neutral vowel to this other one. It is that vowel. And you can get there from whatever you have in that slot. And you don't have to do this mental gymnastic of going through neutral. Um, and that, that, for me, that was kind of a light bulb moment when, when um, I guess it was Doug Abel who, who said it to me. No, not Doug Abel. Honoroff. Yes, no. yes. Doug Honoroff said that's, um, that's a, a path that doesn't need to be taken. And ultimately, your, your, the participants in your work can, can come on that journey from their starting place. And that's Footnote that. Helpful. In the Voice and Speech Review, Doug had that article about lexical sets, and I think he referred to that there. Right. Another question. Hi, my name is Jason Martin. I live in Chicago now, but I was born in Rome, Georgia. Um, proudly so, I think. Um, and I think that sense of home and where we live, I concur with everything you've just said. One of the most fundamental things in my graduate acting training was um, being told that I was coming off as false. And I felt everything emotionally true inside myself. And I trusted my acting teacher. And he very wisely said, go home. It doesn't even have to be you, your accent from home. It could be your wheeling, dealing uncle, because it was Decius Brutus, I think, was what I was doing. He said, but go home. And I was liberated. He said, now let's triangulate. I know you can do Brooklyn. Go to Brooklyn. I did it. Hugh O'Gorman, Cal State Long Beach. And I, I did so. He said, now go back to that quote-unquote standard that was forced upon you years ago. And I did. And my acting, my specific, my not neutral acting, my not generalized acting, my highly specific but widely intelligible dialect, let my acting come through. And that is my problem with both neutral and general, is that we don't want our actors to be either of those things. And they don't want to be those things. And they may need to take a journey, maybe not through neutral, and when, if I ever have a tenure-track position, I am telling the people we are doing shows where a standard or general accent is the last thing in their training they have, because that is the ac last accent that I want them to arrive at. Thank you. I, yeah, I love widely, uh, widely intelligible, because that is often how, how standard accents are sold for their intelligibility. Uh, that I, I had a, a colleague say to me, 
that it was necessary, vital, to say Duke in Shakespeare because Duke was inherently more intelligible than Duke. Uh, well, if adding phonemes was the thing that made things intelligible, Pig Latin would be the most intelligible <laughs> accent. It's only intelligible if there's a receiver there to receive it. And that's why I bring up markedness, that, that both for creating character and for uh, escaping characterization, which is the goal of an unmarked accent, that you have to know how it lands, how an audience receives it. And I, I'm not suggesting that our actors shouldn't be aware of that, that uh, an actor who has a really nasal voice is, has got to know how that reads. They probably already do. And they need to experiment in a really open way with what it would feel like to them to do a different non-nasal oral posture and how it would be read by an audience. So I'm not rejecting that notion of neutrality. I just don't so much like the word. The, the, the only problem is that it can be a, a, a Trojan horse that you can. The whole thing is a Trojan horse, say? Yes, yes, potentially. I mean, the question is, do I want to have my students walking out the other door with an accent that I predicted in advance that is all, all the same? Because I tell you, it only takes. 10 years from my training to become obsolete, and then I'm training that somebody else in that. I mean, the idea that you should say, ask and France is absurd. And, and yet, it's still the most prevalently taught way of dealing with that phoneme. I mean, I don't know what Michael Barnes' survey says, but that is an old-fashioned idea. But there are a lot of Canadians who say ask in France. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's not like it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. There are places where people say that. Um, and, and, you know, the, that lexical set can have a place in a certain accent. Um, I, I, I also think that uh, I, I do want to go back to this idea of kind of timing and that tied into your comment, Jason, about uh, when you learned it and your, your desire to take anything like that to the very end. Um, one thing that really strikes me is that the thing that is quite close to you is often very difficult to do. And things that are far enough away that they are a bit of a stretch are, are often a good leap. You, you know, sort of fling yourself into this new accent. As long as there aren't too many variables. Um, so for instance, uh, my, in my experience, I've had a lot of trouble with students working on Welsh because of the inflection pattern on top of all those sound changes, uh, oral posture changes. Um, and the fact of the matter is that I, I'm not as well versed in the sort of melodic change that is required. And so I'm not as good at coaching it as perhaps I should be. Um, so I wouldn't want to start there. Uh, but working towards things, uh, towards things that are closer to home might actually be a more advantageous strategy for some students or more familiar. Things that are, are very familiar, mainstream accents are actually very familiar. So much so, they, 
well, they don't breed contempt, but they, they're so familiar that we, we don't hear them. We tune them out. Uh, people often speak to me about uh, they come from a family where their, their parents are immigrants and they cannot hear their parents' accent because to them that's the sound of home. It's the sound of love. It's, it's not an accent. And they never did... Once they got mainstreamed, they got sent to school and they recognized that their peers sounded different from them and they worked hard, probably unconsciously, to lose the home accent that they originally grew up with, they've actually kind of whitewashed out of their mouths the sounds that they grew up with. And uh, when I, I say to them, okay, you're an Asian student, let's work on, let's start with your, your family accent. Uh, I, can't, I can't do that. Some of my students can do it very well, uh, but a number of my students can't do it at all and have to really listen hard and dive into that accent as if they were doing the thing that's furthest away from them. Once they start moving their mouth and getting those sounds coming out again, it comes very quickly back. But there's a, a kind of a barrier that exists, I find, for some of my students because of this process they went through to mainstream themselves when they were very young. And that, that's something I, I have to honor, that they went through that process. It was probably very painful for them. And uh, I don't want to take away this interesting skill they acquired, but I want them to reclaim their mother tongue. Uh, I want them to reclaim the ability to work in a sound that they grew up with. And then I want them to do other things that they can pass as uh, that might actually be similar but different. And uh, uh, so that my Chinese student can play a Korean character uh, or an Indonesian character. Uh, and they can be the expert in the room because the producer sure isn't going to be the expert um, so that they, they don't sound like they're lost at sea. I have to say that I had an Indonesian student recently who, she really was wise enough to come forward to me with this project, which is she needed to make a decision, a personal and polit political decision about what she was willing to do. That is to say, I am not going to play a Japanese person. I don't look Japanese enough for that to really make sense, and it would be disrespectful to Japanese people. But I do, I could be Hawaiian, I could, so she sort of made a list of the things that she felt good about embodying, uh, so that she, and, and then she set about checking them off her list, investigating them, and learning to do them well, so she could be the expert in the room. But it meant, and this is true often for students who are uh, not in the mainstream, that they have to actually make an entire plan for how they're going to interact with people and become the political expert in the room in order to make those decisions. Are we at the end of our time? We are. Should we take one more question? Sure. Let's take one more question. Hi, I'm Amy from New York again, and I would like to apologize for unintentionally derailing this <laughs> podcast because my question was about the specific utility of terminology and not about the advisability of teaching uh, a dialect by whatever name we call it. So my last question for you, Phil and Eric, is 
Once you've gone through all the phonemes, what would you really like to talk about next on glossonomia? I think it would be kind of fun to, as Marina suggested, to do particular interesting controversial topics. But it might be fun to do an accent, you know, to say, here are the seven pointers for a Lithuanian accent. Go. Or how to sing backwards or other interesting topics. I, I think not, uh, you know, to some degree we're doing the what right now. And yeah. uh, I'd love to get into the how and to some degree the why. Uh, we, we do a fair bit of why uh, through the, the, the podcast, but um, the, the sort of the thinking behind pedagogy is something that um, is, is really important to both of us. And the kind of how our questioning process works and and our explorations. I mean, our, our classrooms are laboratories, and uh, uh, hopefully we can keep playing and bringing our questions and our discoveries to the podcast. I, I also think it would be lovely to interview people. We haven't really interviewed anybody on the show, except for my daughter. And uh, I think that might be fun. Yeah, and it might be nice to have guest hosts, too. Yeah, we, we do yeah. She wants to hear herself on Glossonomia. All right, we, we we'll work, work that in. We'll work that in. This is not a question, it's in, in recap terminology, it's a share. Um, moving from Genam to the idea of, sort of classical American speech, um, if there are a couple of books on classical American speech, which actually, as a Brit coach, I use all the time, but I use them for the opposite purpose for which they're intended, which is a characteristic of uh, Brit actors attempting American speech is that it sounds much too formal and careful and they cut and paste some of the rules of RP into their Gen Am, so they end up with this rather pre-Vanderkamp uh, sound. So I look at the breakdowns in these classical speech books for, you know, Skinnerist speech of everything that you're supposed to learn to not do at drama school and take that as the basis for all of the things, uh, the sort of... Uh, it processes of elision and assimilation, everything I want to get my Brit actors to do to get them to be convincing as young, non-trained, non-actor Americans. So those books have become really, really useful for me. Uh, to reverse engineer. Absolutely yeah. the opposite uh, process. Yeah. Yes, I think, and uh, I think I've probably said this before, I think that the accent being targeted in books for classical speech is obsolete and archaic, and there's no need for it. And if you get past playing an old-timey actor, which might be a use for it, then you research that, the accent for that gig, like you would if you got cast playing a villain from Serbia. That you and I suppose if you wanted to add a sort of sepia antiquing quality to any character, you could put bits and pieces of that in. All right? All right. Well, thank you to our studio audience. Yay! And as we always end, you can contact us by emailing us at glossonomia at gmail.com. We will have another episode sometime in the future. And uh, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.